tale, Rabbi. Judas, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. see you today. This feels like one of those mornings where um, I found myself just thanking Jesus for reminding us how important it is for us to come together on a regular basis to be able to sing the kind of stuff that we sang this morning about a God whose love that just never fails, right, about a faithfulness that he is always with us. We need that and we need it together. And I'm glad that you came today. We are marching toward Easter. Isn't it crazy? It's almost here. We're just a couple of weeks away from Easter. And together, we are on this journey tracking the steps of Jesus in the last hours before the cross. And so we're looking at moments like the one that you just saw depicted where Judas betrays Jesus with the kiss and, and, and we're told that all the disciples scatter, but not before Peter cuts off the ear, we are told very specifically, of, of the servant of the high priest. As we are walking through this story, we are pulled into it. And it's not just because it's a crazy dramatic story. We are pulled into this story because it is also our story. This is us. And so let's take the next step. Where we left last week is Jesus was gathered with his disciples. They were celebrating the Passover in in that room. From there we're told that they leave and go toward the Mount of Olives. It is one of the three hills that makes up the city of Jerusalem. And we're just going to dig right in. Matthew chapter 26, we'll pick it up where we left off. Check out verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, And now, I want you to check out these words, because we're going to talk about them in a minute. But check this out. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, this is Jesus. Then he said to them, check out this language. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of what? Death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further... Check out his his body. He fell with his face 
to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You know, most weeks that we come together and I get to speak to you, I am usually very intentional about trying to um, structure in such a way that somewhere along the line, at least a couple of times, I I want you to smile. Um, Some of you don't do it very much during the week, I can tell when when I'm looking at you up here, and so it's like... We need to smile, and so every once in a while, we just try to work some things in that that make us laugh. Sometimes we're willing to be a little goofy. I appreciate that TJ would join me in that. We'll be be a little goofy for the sake of, really, just, just trying to sometimes lighten people's hearts a little bit. It's good to laugh. There is probably no other place in the Bible that I struggle with trying to make that happen more than the place that we're about to enter today. In fact, I don't know how to do it here. Because this feels like a place that we should enter on our knees. Because this is a place where I'm convinced, more than any other in all of Scripture, this is where God's love for us is most put on display. The picture of Jesus here is strange, though. I call it strange. I mean, when you read these words, it it almost gives you the impression that there is a weakness with Jesus. I mean, let's be honest about it. That's weird because that's not how we're used to seeing him. We We are used to seeing Jesus with this unflinching courage. I mean, it was just hours earlier when we're told in Scripture that it was time for the cross and all of the disciples were telling Jesus, this is a crazy time for you to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, don't go there. You are in danger. And Jesus, just like Isaiah said he would, set his face like flint, the Bible says. He was a rock. He said, I'm going. But here in the garden, we haven't even yet gotten to the crucifixion. We, we haven't yet arrived at the place where they will torture him, but it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, the word began means something just happened here that hasn't been happening. He is suddenly seeing something that he hasn't been seeing before. The word sorrowful is often translated horrified. Horrified. And the word troubled I struggle to even tell you what this means. A lot of scholars will sort of describe this is an emotional word that would be accompanied like you suddenly discovering that something horrible has happened to your family. See, I don't even like saying that. There's a part of the emotion in me that doesn't even like saying it because I don't, I don't even want my nor your mind going to that place. That is where Jesus' mind is right here and he says his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death now come on Jesus is no drama king Jesus doesn't exaggerate 
The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus prayed in this garden of Gethsemane, that there were sweat drops that fell from his head like blood. It is actually a medical condition that we, that's been discovered. It, it is when a person is under so much stress that literally the capillaries in, in their head burst. Now, come on. This is the Son of God. This, this is the one who always has been, who at the beginning spoke, and creation comes into existence. This is, this is the Son of God who commands angels. He was there when Satan fell. He, he, we've seen him walk on water. We've seen him calm storms. We've seen him stand in front of tombs and tell dead men to walk out, and they did. But here he is under such distress that the capillaries burst in his head, and he almost dies. Gethsemane, this garden, literally means oil press. Like when they would press the olives and the oil would flow. That's what's happening here. The blood is already flowing and we haven't even gotten to the cross. What does Jesus pray? His prayer is, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me Yet not as I will, but as you will. But what I want you to recognize is what is next. And the answer is nothing. He talks to the Father. What does the Father say back? Nothing. It is silent. I think that is a part of what we're dealing with here. That is a part of the intensity that has taken place in this garden. Jesus has always been close to the Father. He has always drawn strength from his relationship with the Father. There were times that Jesus would exit everything else just so he could spend time with the Father. The Father who has affirmed him to be, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And now when he needs him, we would say the most. He is silent, which I think is in part why Jesus then turns back to the disciples. It's okay for us to say he needed someone. Check out verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What is happening here? Well, I agree with what many New Testament scholars tell us that what seems to be the explanation of what's taking place here is that God has already begun to turn his face away. Now we always talk about this. We talk about how on the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin. And God cannot look upon sin. 
But what, what seems to be reflected in the scripture is that already before the first nail is even driven, the one who has always lived his life for the approval of the father, now his father has turned his face away. And I'm telling you, Jesus staggers under the weight, almost to the point of death. It was William Lane, he is a, a New Testament scholar, he said, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the father came to be with the Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. In other words, Jesus was alone. He was alone. You ever felt alone? I mean like really alone. Like a friend walks out on you. A child walks out on you. A spouse walks out on you. I mean, like, really alone. And I'm telling you, that's what Jesus knows here to the fullest degree. And it is not just that he is alone, it is the pain of rejection. Because don't we all know that the closer the relationship, the greater the pain? If it's somebody you don't really know and they reject you, it's sort of like, well, that, who do they think they are? But if it's somebody you love who rejects you, what is it like to lose the infinite love of the Father that Jesus has always known for all of eternity? All of eternity past, he has known this kind of love. I don't know. I don't know how to describe that. I don't even know how to start to unpack that for you. The closest thing that I could get to it is to say I could understand the emotion that I feel to just imagine what it would be like for me to do this to my kids. In other words, if my kids needed me most in the middle of their pain and I knew it, but I turned my back and walked away, and they died. That's as close as I can get. Just imagining it and then quickly running some other direction because I don't want to stay there, that's as close as I can get. I'm saying that's what Jesus goes through in this moment because that's what God did. And he did it. For me. And he did it. For you. See, most of us think what made the cross, the crucifixion, so bad was the physical part of it. And man, don't, don't be deceived into thinking that it, that it wasn't horrible. The historians tell us, like Cicero, he is, a, he is a Roman historian, he tells us that the goal of the Romans in crucifixion was to utterly humiliate people. That's what they did. It was not just the physical pain, it was humiliation. And so they, they often choose very public places to crucify people. Think about, you know, public areas in, in, in our world. You think about where people hang out the most they would choose the Sprint Center, and that's where they would crucify someone because that's where the most people would gather. And so it was not 
unlikely that a person often would walk into such a place and there hangs a man completely naked in such agony that he would be weeping and vomiting. Women were crucified backwards because nobody could stand to look at the anguish, anguish on their face. Yes, the physical was horrible. And Jesus, we're told before he even gets to the cross, was beaten almost beyond recognition. But that was not what made Jesus stagger in the garden. That is not what sends him face down. What sends him face down in the garden is the utter, utter abandonment by the Father that he has always been one with. And the full wrath of God on sin that is now being placed on him. Gethsemane, Jesus looks fully into what the Bible calls the cup of God's wrath. And it so overwhelmed him that it almost killed him. Isaiah said it would happen a long time before. Check this out. Isaiah 31 or 51 verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. That's what Jesus takes on in Gethsemane. That is what's happening here. God's wrath poured out upon sin. You think about just your sin. Come on. Just think about the stuff you've done. And then you start accumulating the sin in this room. Woo, we could tell some stories. And then you start thinking about the sin of the world. And the wrath of God that must be poured out against sin. And all of that flooding toward Jesus. Jonathan Edwards said, you, you can sort of see it like you're standing in front of a huge dam holding back water. Right? And, and as you're standing there, suddenly there is a crack in that dam. And then it opens up and water comes rushing towards you several hundred feet high. And you know you're done. You're done. It is just a matter of seconds. And right before the water gets to you, the ground opens up. All the water is engulfed and not one drop touches you. That is what Jesus did for me. And that is what Jesus did for you. He drank the cup of God's wrath the fullness of it, and then he turned it over on the altar of God and said, it is finished. No more wrath for those who turn to me. Jesus took this in our place. He took God's wrath for us. That's what Gethsemane meant to Jesus, that's what Gethsemane means to me. That's what Gethsemane means for the world. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Is it a little bit dangerous? Is it a little bit dangerous that the Father would show Jesus that, like, before he gets to the cross? Because, I mean, this is the plan. 
The plan is that Jesus will, will do what he knows it needs to be done in order for our sin to be, if he shows him ahead of time, why not just wait till he gets to the cross and then show him how horrible this picture is? And I think it's because the Bible wants to make sure we are crystal clear on this. Jesus walked where he walked, both in Gethsemane and at Calvary. Not because he was tricked into it, but because he chose it for you and me. He chose to love me. He chose to love you. Watch what happens. Verse 43. When he, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. There's a whole nother sermon, by the way, on just people sleeping. That's a, that's a whole nother one we can't even t- go, don't have time to tackle today. So he left them, verse 44 says, and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the th- same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, somewhere in this mix, the Gospel of Luke tells us that an angel came to minister to Jesus. I think that's pretty cool. The father who has turned away. The disciples who can't seem to stay awake. And an angel comes. It's like, well, what does the angel do? Well, perhaps part of, the reason, part of the answer lies in Hebrews chapter 12, because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we are told that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Maybe that's part of what the angel did. Maybe a part of what he did that day was to remind him of the joy. You're like, what joy, right? What would Jesus have after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? I mean, come on. Would he have the approval of God? No, he's already got that. Would he be the king of the universe? Nope, that one already hangs on the mantle too. All of those he already has. What would he have after the cross that he couldn't have before the cross? You! He could have you! If he doesn't step this direction, then there is no shot for you and I to get to him. But through the cross, there is a joy that we could come to be his family, that he would love us in such a way. Now, don't don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean you're the center of the universe. He is. And his greatness will always be the center of everything. And God's chief end, including the cross, it is his glory. And the glory he revealed in the cross is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It looked like the father was turning away. When in reality, this was what had to happen. So that when he saw us way down the road... He could run to us. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. All right, this is, this is kind of where we picked up with the little video that you saw a few seconds ago. 
Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Now just a couple of seconds. Does anybody recognize in this statement that there are people showing up that night to arrest Jesus who do not know who he is? They don't know what he looks like. Some of them don't. Now, how satanic is that? Seriously. How how much does that show you about an enemy that these people are about to do what we would consider to be the worst thing that anybody could ever do in the history of the world and they don't even know what he looks like because Judas says, he will be the one I kiss. That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know. Man. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. He kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came here for, friend. That's not a sarcastic term, by the way. All the way to the end. All the way to the end. Jesus is still calling for Judas' heart. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. By the way, John's gospel tells us this is Peter. He calls him by name. Matthew's a little kinder. He doesn't call Peter out. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion, in military terms, is 5,000 soldiers, so 12 Legions are 60,000 angels. And just to put it in perspective, if you read in the book of Revelation, in the end, four angels will wipe out all the armies of the earth. Four. And he's got 60,000 at his disposal. In other words, Jesus has plenty of power. What is happening here is not because he's just in a bad situation that he can't get out of. Verse 54, Jesus said, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? What do you mean? Well, this is what the the Old Testament has always pointed toward. Zechariah chapter 11 tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's pretty specific. Isaiah 53 tells us that, that he would be wounded for our transgressions. Psalm 22 tells us that they would divide up his clothes. It tells us that his hands and his feet would be pierced, but it tells us that no bone in his body would be broken. It all pointed toward the exact way it would happen. But Peter, nor, nor any of those other disciples, can see it at this moment. I was just thinking about this a minute ago. This isn't even. By the way, Peter cuts off the dude's ear, and Jesus put it back on. If you're in the crowd that night, wouldn't there be something in you that, that might would have gone, okay, let's let's just let's just call a timeout for a second. Seriously, Jesus cut the ear off, or Judas cut the ear off, Jesus put it back on. Maybe a little something that we might want to go. Hold up. And then there's the part that John tells us that when they show up and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I am. And they all fell to the ground. Wouldn't there be something in you that just went, okay. Maybe we should talk this out. 
But isn't it interesting that none of those things stopped that night? Because it had to happen. Jesus knew it had to happen. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you would have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Last week, we talked about how Judas represents all of us. You might have guessed by now this week is about the fact that Peter does too. Peter tends to represent all of us too because very simply there are just a couple of things that Peter doesn't understand. First of all, Peter did not understand his own condition. Peter did not understand his own condition. When Peter draws that sword that night in the garden, what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I'm with you. Right? Jesus, I'm with you. Jesus, I'm one of the good guys. Come on, let's drop some judgment on the bad guys. We got this. That's what he's saying. But what Peter doesn't understand is that there are no good guys yet. There are no good guys. And the only way that Jesus can truly save Peter is not by taking out the sword and destroying that, 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 that you know, group who came to seize him that night. The only way he can save Peter is to stand under that sword. Back in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. They sin, and we are given the clear description there that God blocked their way back into his presence by an angel with a flaming sword. Well, here we are in a garden again. And this time, the only one who has the right to use the sword instead steps underneath it. See, Peter doesn't understand the good news of Jesus taking his place yet. He doesn't understand the good news of of Jesus as his substitute because Peter is still wrestling with, with what he believes that he can save himself. And when you think that you're good enough to save yourself, the result of that is you will start using the sword on other people. That's what you do. When you think that you're one of the good guys, then we have a tendency to look down on judgment of those who, who are not. But, but according to Jesus, there's not good people and bad people. There are just people who have rebelled against God. That's what we all have done. Thank God that Jesus saves bad people because that's the only kind of people there are. Most of us, like Peter have a way of dividing our world into a couple of categories. It's the bad guys and us, right? And so whatever you want to group, right, however you want to make the groupings, I mean, it might be, it might be conservatives and liberals. Well, who's the bad guy? Them, right? Whichever one you put yourself in, the other one, they're, they're the bad guy. And, and we tend to want to use the sword against them, maybe not a literal sword, but, but we, we suddenly want to stand in judgment of them. 
But the scripture reflects there's no you and them. It is we. We all are under God's judgment. None of us deserves to bring the sword against anyone else. The only one who truly could have brought the sword against us instead chose to stand under it for us. That's what Peter did not understand. He did not understand his own condition and that what Jesus was doing could change eternity for Peter. But there's one other thing he didn't understand. Peter did not understand what we're going to call kingdom power. He, He didn't understand kingdom power. What I mean by that is Peter draws that sword that night because he thinks, like most people tend to think, the way you bring change in the world is through coercive power. That's how you do it. That's how you change people. It's coercive power. But Jesus said, through my death, I'm going to release a power that is greater than the sword. It's greater than 12 legions of angels. Look, I'm telling you, people in our world think power is associated with things like the Oval Office and controlling the federal budget. But what we know from this story and what we know from Scripture is how wrong that is. I mean, come on, maybe you're here today and you would say honestly that that you're not even a religious person, all right? You just came today to get somebody off your back. I would just challenge you with the question, who, who is the most influential person in the history of the world? I mean, what one figure in history has caused more change, more disruption, than any other figure, in the, and really, you're going to find it difficult to find anybody who will argue the answer to that question being anything other than Jesus. Jesus, what, what is that about? How many elections did he win? Literally, he, he didn't even have a place to lay his head when he walked here, but he gave his life. I would challenge you to see there are leaders, right, that, that surface. You, 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 a Muhammad, right, the founder of Islam, he rides in on a horse and conquers cities. Jesus was born in a manger and washed people's feet. The cross means that the world's values about power are wrong. It's wrong. The way we change the world is not by the sword. The way we change the world is when we speak the truth of God's word in the power of God's spirit and we serve in love and forgiveness. I want you to realize what I'm talking about is kingdom power because I don't want you to walk out of here today going, well, Jeff talked today about... uh, a total approach to pacifism. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. 
This is not teaching a total approach to pacifism or saying that, that, that government shouldn't bear the sword. The Bible tells us otherwise. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught that God established government and that they held a sword for a reason. What we're talking about, though, is the kingdom of God. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, power is not given with the sword. Power is, is more than, than force. It is more than riches. It is through the power of the cross. And I'm telling you, any real movement of God, you look back on history, it was people who embraced the way of the cross. When Peter draws that sword, he's saying he doesn't understand what's going on here. He doesn't get what the cross is all about. Isn't it funny? When you look at Judas and you look at Peter, at first... They look opposite. They do. Because Judas betrays Jesus. Peter defends Jesus. But I'm telling you this morning, they actually both suffer from the same problem. The problem is both of them think that suffering is incompatible with Jesus' mission. You hear what I said? They both think that suffering is incompatible with Jesus' mission. Neither one of them understands that it is actually central to it. Judas wanted to get rid of Jesus, so let's take him to the cross, get rid of him. Peter wants Jesus to avoid the cross because he wants to protect him. But both of them are clueless to the fact that the cross is why Jesus came. Because at the cross, Jesus takes the full cup of God's wrath and he drinks it all for you and for me he doesn't take the sword like he deserves and strike but instead he steps under that sword because that was the only way when I think about this truth I have a hard time not going back to a story that has been around for a long time, but the fact that we're still talking about it, I think, is testimony to its power. Um, it is a story of a group of missionaries more than 60 years ago. One of them was named Jim Elliott, if you've ever read his story. These group of missionaries, there were five men and what they were trying to do was to reach one of the most unreached and violent tribes in Ecuador. They were called the Aka. Jim Elliott and those four other men one day landed their little plane on that beach in order to establish contact with the Aka, who had never heard about Jesus. First meeting went well. Second meeting did not. And on January the 8th, 1956, a group of Aka warriors stabbed those five men with spears and left their bodies floating in the river. But a part of what makes this story extra special is that several years later, the wives and the children 
of those five men went after the Aka again. Not in revenge, but to get the news of Jesus to them. The wives and the children of those five men reestablished contact with the Aka. They built schools for them. They built hospitals for them. They taught them the Bible. And they led the Aka to Jesus. One of the sons of one of those men actually led to Jesus and baptized the very man who had killed his father. And then his family adopted that man to be a surrogate grandfather for the one that that man had taken from them. There's another part of the story that I hardly ever hold here told. The moment that those five men were murdered, they were armed. All five armed. But when they recovered the bodies, they discovered that not one single shot had been fired. And then they found a journal. And in the journal, it was recorded where several days before those men made that second journey, they decided that they would never fire a weapon at those tribesmen who did not know Jesus. And the son of one of those men who died, years later, described it this way. He said, my dad knew that if he died, he'd go to heaven. He also knew that if the men attacking him died, they wouldn't go to heaven. And so he did for them what Jesus did for him. When it came to the hour of decision, he decided not to take life, but to offer it. That's because kingdom power doesn't come through a sword. Kingdom power comes through a cross. My first question is, do you understand your condition? Do you understand your condition before a holy God? When the Bible says that we all have sinned against him, we all deserve his wrath. I beg you, don't try to have a conversation with me that all religions are basically the same. That just tells me you haven't read about all religions. Because I'm telling you they're not. Christianity turns religion upside down because Christianity is the only one that tells us the truth that salvation is not something that we achieve. It is instead something that we receive as a gift. My question to you today is do you know your condition? Do you see it? And have you received 
the gift that Jesus paid for you. You're like, how do I get that? Well, you, you ask. You come to him in a heart that says, I know that I have sinned against you. Jesus, I need you. And it is not something I earn. It's not something I deserve, but I need you. And when you call out to him, you receive. And he forgives. And he never brings it up again. He forgives, and he never brings it up again. He embraces you, makes you his child. The promises that we sang about earlier, about a love that never ends, about a faithfulness that is always, that that becomes truth for your life. In this life and in the next. Do you know your condition? Have you seen it? And have you received it? And then to those who have My second question is, do you understand that Jesus did not walk walk through Gethsemane and he did not die on a cross to make a comfortable little life for you? He did not walk through Gethsemane and he did not die on a cross to make a comfortable little life for you. Now don't get me wrong, when this life is over and the next one begins, comfortable isn't even going to be the word. It is going to be a joy. It is going to be a peace. It is going to be so crazy good, so much in his presence, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. I mean, we tend to equate all that with comfortable, but I'm telling you, it ain't gonna, that's not going to be comfortable. That's going to be wonderful. That's going to be marvelous. Standing in his presence. But he didn't do all that to make a comfortable little life for you and me. He did it. And then he said, go, because I want the nations to know. I want the nations to know. The Arca, I want them to know. This is how I love. This is what changes the world. And there will be a day, Scripture says, that there will be a multitude that surrounds his throne. It'll be more people than any of us can count. My question is, does the vision of your life reflect that truth? Because the God who says go is the Savior of Gethsemane. And the Savior who sends us is the Savior who goes with us. Why would we be afraid when he is our king? There's a part of me today that, like, wants to tell you, I'm a, there's kind of this part of me that feels a little bit, I don't know what the word is, sorry today, because it's like, man, this is like so in your face, and this is like so intense, and I like have lived in it all week. 
I think this is where we're supposed to live. I don't mean that we got to be sad all the time. But I'm talking, it, it's more of overwhelmed. It is overwhelmed in the presence of the one who is marvelous. And the one who is wonderful. Therefore, let's don't live comfortable little lives. Let's follow him. God, I ask today that you would give us eyes that can see. God, I ask today that our heart might be overwhelmed. God, some of us may need to hang out in the garden for a little while this week. God, some of us need to see again the intensity of what happened in that moment. And God, to realize all that could have stopped it, God, all that should have stopped it. And then we realize the reason, the reason it wasn't is you. And the reason you didn't is because you love. So God, I pray today for those who maybe see for the first time their condition before you. And maybe see for the first time this truth about a Savior who has done everything that is necessary. God, in this moment, by your Spirit, would you draw us to you and give us faith to believe. God, I pray for those who today need to turn to you and call out. God, I pray across this room, I pray for people who will eventually, God, hear my voice from, from this talk. I pray that by your Spirit, God, people will meet you, even today. I pray that forgiveness could be experienced. God, that they might know what it means to be connected to you. But God, I also pray for your children today. God, sometimes, sometimes we are just fed so much in this world about comfort. We are, we are fed so much about God, what can we position our lives to make it as easy as possible? And God, there's something so much bigger. I, I pray for those who today are going through tough stuff. God, there's some folks in this room who are probably feeling some pushback because they're trying to follow you. They're, they may feel it in their families. It, it, it may be in their work. It may be school. God, I'm asking. I'm asking today that they might be able to look straight into the eyes of one who knows fully what that aloneness can feel like, knows fully what that pain can feel like, but one today who has all power to change lives. God, we stand. We stand in your presence. Marvelous, wonderful. God, may this always be our song. We praise you in this moment. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together. As we sing, we'll be here on the side. If you need prayer today, we would be honored, honored to help you however we can. Let's lift our voices. Let's sing it to him. He is here.